program everybody you just stepped inside of psychotic bump school the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul my name is dj rome and i want to welcome you to another exciting edition of psychotic bump school so ladies and gentlemen tonight oh you know we always got the goods every time you tune into psychotic bump school and this episode will be no different so check this out i want to share with you an amazing story of one woman's journey with her family from the United States over to Italy and back during the onset of coronavirus. And she's here to tell her amazing story of how she survived all of that. Her name is Christy Slanina. She's an educator from Southern California, family woman. She has an amazing story and I am looking forward to sharing it with you. That's Christy Slanina. Also joining us will be for the very first time, Dr. Shakir Emel. Dr. Emel is an emergency room physician in Southern California. He's been right on the front lines of this coronavirus outbreak, and he has some insights to share with us this evening. That's Dr. Shakir Emel. Also want to welcome back our amazing panelist, Lori Peacock, and my good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller, as we talk about the narrowing of the Democratic primary race. It's now down to two people. Joe Biden has emerged against the other guy <laughs> on the other side. That's right. Bernie Sanders has dropped out, y'all. So it's going to be Biden versus 45 in November. So we're here to talk all about it. So that's our lineup. It's going to be an amazing show. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We'll be right back with our first guest, Dr. Shakir Email. after this. We are back, 
KCWG, thetruth.com. This program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and we are continuing our coverage of this historic pandemic called coronavirus. And as you know, ladies and gentlemen, we've had periodic guests on to give us their expert insight to the best of their ability. And uh, this guest will be no different. He is an attending physician and he's practicing right here in Southern California. I say right here as if I'm down there. He's in California, I'll just say that, uh, representing very, very well. And uh, I am so excited to have him here. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, the good brother, Dr. Shakir Emel. Dr. Emel, are thank you Thank you, thank you. Hey. Yes, good to be here. Good to have you, man. How in the world are you doing? I'm doing well. We're uh, staying busy, but staying uplifted. Man, I, I, I am so glad to hear that. Thank you so much for, for doing this because the upliftment of our first line responders is something that I am very, very concerned about. And I'll tell you more about that in just a second. But you're doing some very important work, my brother. Everybody that's come on since the onset of this, I've been kind of doing sort of a mental check-in of, of, of our folks, you know what I'm saying? Just because, you know, we're out there, mm -hmm. you're seeing stuff, you're dealing with stuff, and this is a new reality. Uh, before we get too formal, just, just how are you doing? How, how, are you okay? Yes, yes, I, I'm hanging in there. Uh, we're taking things one day at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a beautiful, supportive family. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, they undergird uh, everything that I do. And uh, that makes a huge difference. So it, it helps to have uh, something to fight for, something to come home to. And that adds a little silver lining to the very dark cloud that's mm -hmm. uh, passing overhead right now. Tell me about it. Well, given how this is uh, it's starting to develop and, you know, we're hearing the daily stories and daily press briefings all the time. And uh, we're going to avoid the political aspect of it. But how would you say the day-to-day -day functions of your basic duties, how much have they been impacted since the onset of this virus? Uh, life in the ER is very different. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the cases we see, uh, as you can imagine, are now infection or breathing related. Uh, so working in an ER, we're, we're not necessarily infectious disease specialists by nature, uh, but we've had to become such. Uh, and a lot of the other things that we're accustomed to seeing are coming in less. So it's mm. uh, really changed the scope of our practice in many ways. Oh, wow. uh, for us, uh, a third to half of our physical department uh, is now related to uh, COVID or COVID suspected cases. Mm. Um, so that, that takes up, you know, you can kind of get the idea that mentally, obviously it's taking up a fair amount of space with physically, it actually is taking up a lot of space in our department. Uh, and uh, in addition to just the regular practice of medicine, uh, as you can probably imagine from all the news that you're hearing, this is a very quickly moving, ever evolving uh, disease. Uh, and, and our understanding of it is changing all the time. So not only do we go in and do our regular clinical work, uh, but now we dedicate significant parts of our time to uh, education, updates, training mm -hmm. on how to handle uh, this pandemic. Uh, and uh, interestingly, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's an, uh, out of necessity. We are spending less time and eventually less contact with lower acuity patients. And so we're moving to leverage technology more and more to the point where even in the ER, we're starting to have just virtual visits with patients who are uh, kind of by triage, the walking wounded, so to speak. So those who are, are well and, and are not in any severe state, 
Uh, we're even starting to do virtual visits with them, with them, us physically in the ER, but separated in, in space and just going on video and, and assessing things that way. Oh, wow. Now, that's something you would normally do during normal times if the patients were able to come to see you physically uh, in the room, I'm guessing. Now, what, what is it like now to take on these additional duties? Because is it as simple as maybe a, a point guard switching to power forward for a game while they're, while they're starting power forward is injured? Or is it like playing a different sport altogether? How would you describe those additional duties that you didn't used to do prior to this? Uh, in what ways have you had to adjust to it? Has it been difficult? In some ways, it's like playing a different sport every single day. Uh, it, there, there is the landscape is so ever-changing that the things you learn today may not apply tomorrow. And in fact, there have been days in recent weeks where the CDC guidelines, the recommendations that exist, the form of treatments that exist, the uh, testing protocols, they have changed more than once in one day. And so there have been times where I, ha I work to get my understanding up to speed over the course of one shift, and by the end of that shift, uh, things, my understanding was, was obsolete. And so it's, it can be challenging keeping up with a fast-moving pace of things. So given that, and you could, well, and that's, that's got to be taxing, because you, you think you're going north and you're good, and then all of a sudden they want you to pivot. So given the, the WHO and CDC guidelines, WHO, of course, standing for World Health Organization, when they're doling out these recommendations that you know of course medical professionals are inclined to uh adhere to uh and then they suddenly pull the rug from beneath you so to speak and come out with something else that you know to meet the more pressing need what impact does it have on workers doctors you first line responders i mean what's the best way you can describe the mental uh morale of the the staff around you and your medical community how would you describe that in lieu of all these constant changes a great question. And may I just start by saying that a lot of a lot of this has to do with your leadership. And I think the leadership uh, where I am is, is excellent. Uh, I have spoken to other colleagues where the leadership may not be so exemplary uh, and things are a little bit more challenging there. But I think across the board, uh, it, it is a very common state to find ourselves trying to mitigate frustration as we mitigate disease. So I, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, at the top of the, the program, I uh, am an ER physician. I've been practicing emergency medicine uh, for some years now. And so in the ER, we're used to death and destruction. Uh, that, is, that is part for the course in many ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, the challenge is here that now we are dealing with this uh, as the target moves. And that moving target, I think, is the frustrating part. And part of the way that we tend to deal with death and destruction in the ER is to be prepared. We go through drills, we, we go through uh, scenarios and simulations in order to prepare us for what to do in situations that might terrorize other people. And so we are comfortable by that preparation, but it is very difficult to prepare for something like this when the target is moving. And again, we've had, as I mentioned before, we, we have regular education updates and training. And even though we've had training and simulations on this already, some of that stuff is obsolete. And so frustration is kind of the name of the game. But I will say this, mm. uh, even though we're kind of used to some of the challenges that come with 
emergent medicine and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, the, the other challenge is that this is happening on a slightly larger scale than we're used to. Mm. And so uh, we're used to seeing sick patients again. That, that, that's, that's not a, anything new or different for us. But we're starting to see uh, the level of illness, the level of sickness, the, the speed with which people deteriorate all increase. And that is also something that is a little bit challenging to deal with. Yeah. Uh, I will say that we have not in Southern California reached New York or Wuhan, China proportions right. uh, so far. And so I do know that some of my, my friends in other locations have had more difficult time uh, dealing uh, with the, some of the mental health capacity or, or, or uh, aspects of this. But um, so far here, I think we're all banded together. Uh, again, at least where I work, we've got great leadership that helps to keep us moving in the right direction and keep us encouraged. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm also really happy to hear about your confidence in the leadership because all of that trickles down. And if it comes out correctly from the top, you know, things are more likely to roll a little bit more smoothly or as smoothly as they can, given your circumstances. And so given that, and you just talked about the those high crucial levels that are happening in other parts of the world, like China. Uh, they're sort of on the, the, the downward side of that crest right now, whereas New York is going up. Uh, a glimmer of hope, however, uh, not to be overly optimistic, but California's uh, response to this two weeks ago by doing this shuttering in as early as two weeks ago uh, is touted as being something that has saved lives and have possibly staved off you know, a massive, massive critical influx of this, of uh, people who might be carrying this virus. So given your estimation, you kind of alluded to it just a moment ago, uh, what would you say the, the approximate ballpark estimate is as to when your medical community just around you kind of expects things to really uh, start to peak up? It's difficult to say, uh, again, just because of the moving targets. Um, our best estimates are that we are expecting our surge um, sometime in April, probably mid-April has been the, the estimated time. And uh, we have models for um, low, high, and medium surge. And so uh, we don't know which one's coming for us. Obviously, we're, especially in my department, uh, planning for the worst, hoping for the best. But um, it, it can potentially get gnarly over the next weeks here uh, yeah. if we have uh, a significant surge as, um, as some models project. Absolutely. Well, that makes a lot of sense. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and we're speaking with emergency room physician, Dr. Shakir Email, And uh, he's breaking down some things that uh, we need to hear, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, a lot of these things you may have heard before, but I'm telling you, uh, Dr. Email, uh, going behind the scenes a little bit, there's a lot of people floating different uh, messaging across uh, the, uh, the social sphere across our media pages regarding possible cures, possible things you can do that don't necessarily correlate with WHO and CDC guidelines. But uh, I was hoping we could discuss one or two of them and dispel some myths about really true ways that are have, that have the likeliest or the highest likelihood of actually protecting ourselves. For example, uh, heat. Um, does heat or what, what role does heat play in a virus like this? Is there any validity to the fact that heat and orange peelings can have a, a beneficial impact on someone trying to avoid catching coronavirus? 
Yes and no. Um, the, I would like to back up for just a moment, just to go back to what is what are we talking about when we say coronavirus? Yes. Now, coronaviruses have been around for a long time. This is maybe the first time that the general community is hearing about them or talking about them, but we in medicine have been talking about them for time immemorial. Coronaviruses are tend to be responsible for the common cold as a family of viruses. And so in that sense, the validity of some home remedies extends to this disease in as much as they tend to promote generally healthy lifestyle uh, and increase fitness. Um, so, for example, um, you mentioned orange peels. Mm. Eating oranges, we know oranges are high in vitamin C. Uh, and um, if you're eating a whole bunch of oranges in order to get better and instead not eating uh, fast food, then by nature of the fact that you're eating fresh, fresh fruit, that confers upon you potentially greater health, um, which will, again, uh, give you some resistance, more importantly, greater resilience if you happen to catch a disease. Now, mm. hot heat is a little bit more theoretical. The idea behind heat is kind of mimicking a fever. Uh, when your body has an infection, you get a fever, and the fever is, is in essence, designed to make your body less hospitable the infection, and so the infection will therefore decrease its rate of, of replication and therefore decrease the overall uh, intensity, potentially duration of the disease. We know that fever works that way. I have not seen any, any great studies to suggest that it's proven that you drinking heat, uh, drinking something hot, or going into a sauna, et cetera, actually has the same effect, but that's the theory behind it. So. If you're drinking a lot of water and teas, hot water and teas, again, I think the bigger benefit is you are drinking something that has general health fitness benefits uh, as opposed to soda or other things. And so, again, I think the benefit is in the fact that it may confer upon you a, health, a healthier lifestyle mm -hmm. um, by eating, you know, fruits high in vitamins and uh, increasing your water and tea ingestion. Okay. All right. Well, how about masks, uh, Dr. Email? They're talking a little bit more publicly now about the speculations behind the scenes with people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, those uh, two prominent uh, physicians that are helping out this administration through this coronavirus. They're talking more publicly about their behind the scenes discussions about considering masks for the general public. I saw a press conference with Governor Gavin Newsom, and he says that he has personally distributed uh, up till now, approximately 35.4 million masks. Uh, knowing that there's um, a sort of a compromised system in the medical community, I mean, I want y'all to have it first before anybody, given that you guys are uh, first line responders. But what's your take on the, uh, the necessity at this point or at an eventual point where masks for the general public will become, uh, a, you know, one of our new daily norms? Um, mass in public, Dr. Emil. What are your thoughts on that? So you, you mentioned two, two things. So let's talk about masks for um, COVID-19 right now, where we are here, April 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, and then let's talk about the sort of long term uh, right. separately. So right now here, April 2020, um, masks for the purpose of uh, anything COVID-19 related are helpful really in these two scenarios for the general public. Okay. Um, if you feel that you are sick, masks help you 
the sick individual uh, prevent or, or decrease the spread of droplets, which is again how this is transmitted. So if you are potentially sneezing or coughing or really heavily breathing, then you wearing a mask can potentially decrease your production and extrusion of droplets, which is again, the mode of, of transmission here. Mm -hmm. So if you're sick, yes, uh, masks have a benefit. Okay. The other, the only other benefit that has been extrapolated from the use of masks is that masks tend to serve as a reminder to us not to touch our face. You've got a mask there. It again is kind of just a physical symbol for you to remember. I've got something on my face. I, it's, it's harder for me to mindlessly touch my face, which is again, a mode of transmission. If you have now come into contact with droplets, the droplets don't seep through your pores. The droplets have to go and touch one of your mucous membranes. So your mouth, your nose, your eyes. And so it helps the mask helps to help you remember to not do that. And so in that sense, masks have been uh, helpful. Right. Now, that said, the issue is that what is a known fact is that the medical community does not have enough personal protective equipment shortened uh, to a PPE. Right. So given that there's no good information to suggest that hospital grade uh, masks really benefit the public, I would actually encourage individuals to consider donating any masks or other PPE they have to their local hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, because the thing we have to remember is the big picture. We keep talking, we've, we've heard about it in the media that we wanna flatten the curve. Right. What does flatten the curve mean? If you look at the, the, the pictures that they often show with this, the area under the curve, the number of people affected is not necessarily any different between the tall curve and the flat curve. The difference is that we're seeing the same number of people instead of as a spike, which overwhelms the hospital system, as a longer hump or curve over the course of time, which means that we're anticipating that medical systems are going to have to deal with significant numbers of people just over longer periods of time. And if hospital staff succumb to infection, then that, that will further strain the medical system and compromise patient care. And so I, my personal take, based on the literature I've read, based on the information to which I'm privy, uh, I would encourage others, so let, let me back up for a moment. There are, there are scenarios like in New York where um, doctors and nurses uh, and nursing assistants do not have adequate PPE. I mean, they are actively strained. They are actively being asked to reuse their yeah. old personal protective equipment. Um, there was even, I, I heard uh, some suggestion that, um, again, hospital workers who are actively exposed to people known with the disease are being told, maybe you should wear a bandana uh, in order to protect yourself when you go in. And that, we know that's not adequate, but that's maybe better than nothing. Mm -hmm. I would try to see if we can maybe, we do have to be good neighbors uh, in this pandemic as it affects us all. And so uh, I would ask anyone who's feeling neighborly uh, that maybe mm -hmm. for what it's worth, uh, we can flip that a little bit. Maybe they can find ways to come up with creative things that they themselves can wear. Uh, my wife found a very interesting uh, set of patterns online 
uh, of masks that can be sewn at home. Uh, and maybe people in the general public can wear that so that they, again, can maybe decrease the amount of droplets that they extrude and have that reminder so that they don't touch their faces. And the real hospital-grade mask can be donated to the people on the front lines who need it. Uh, because again, if, if, if we fall, um, then, then that's our line of defense and it's gonna get a lot worse than it could if we can't adequately care for the people who are actively sick wow. uh, and dying in hospitals. Yeah, amen to that. I mean, at the top of this interview, I think I mentioned to you my reasons for being excited about um, the, the quality of leadership that you have there and the things that you're fighting for because I asked you about your, your mental outlook and uh, given all that, Dr. Yamel, I'm married to a registered nurse. I don't know if I told you, but no. Uh, yeah, she's on the front line too. And so it's something on a daily basis. You, you know, I mean, I'm notorious working in education and mental health as I do. I'm notorious for bringing work home, but commonly you don't bring work home per se. But during this pandemic, Dr. Yamel, we're all bringing our work with us everywhere we go right now in that we have elevated levels of concern for our loved ones and our loved ones who are out there like you putting in the work and putting in the time and exposing yourself to potential hazards of your, your duties, um, it, it's a concern for us that have to sit back and kind of worry about you. You know, a lot of us have been uh, relegated to staying at home and working from home and you don't have that luxury. And so uh, give me before you go and, you know, thank you so much for, for doing all that, that that's sacrifice. You know, this, this current president calls this, uh, calls himself a wartime president. Um, I don't know if medical professionals feel like we're at war right now and that there's a, there's a oncoming uh, invisible Godzilla that's just lurking, trying to take us out. But being a good neighbor is, is, is an awfully effective message right now. Um, your general outlook on um, where this is going, uh, given the competency of your leadership and the sense of your the, the training and the the the, uh, the background you have in this and the, all the trauma experiences that you've had, uh, what's your outlook? Um, your level of optimism today going forward? Uh, how are we are we going to be okay? Well, we're we're going to we're going to survive. There, there's no doubt that we're going to survive. Um, the question is is what the casualty rate will be. Mm. And uh, uh, to your point, a lot of that has to do with leadership. And um, yeah. I, I think it really makes a difference uh, for us to uh, be able to have confidence uh, that um, we're doing all of the right things in the right times in order to come through this together as a nation. Yes. I do have concerns that um, we have been, uh, our poise on this as a nation has been a little flat-footed. Yeah. And so I do worry um, from what I am seeing and hearing on the front lines and being connected to others on the front lines is that more people may have to get sick uh, and possibly more people may have to die than might be necessary mm -hmm. um, if we had um, really attacked this in an aggressive manner. Uh, but we'll never really know. Yeah. And so I would say at this point, the best things that we can do um, are to prepare ourselves. And I think that means um, some very basic things. I, I always tell people who ask me complicated medical things, go back to what grandma said. Um, grandma told us to um, get your rest. Grandma told you to eat your vegetables. Um, grandma, um, told you, um, you know, not to worry, that things are going to be all right. Uh, and uh, grandma also 
made sure um, that you had a sense of of, uh, of faith and hope and optimism even in the face of difficulty. And so I think that is where we stand right now, that if you are managing your stress, if you're getting good sleep, if you're eating like you're supposed to, Grandma also said get out there and play. Uh, if you're going outside to the, it, practicing social distancing, getting some exercise, getting some sun, especially as we start to get into the spring, I think we're going to be as best poised. And again, I, I thank you for reiterating it. We've got to be good neighbors. Um, let's not hoard. Uh, let's let's try to take care of each other. Uh, because at the end of the day, one thing I think this has taught us is that we are what we have, uh, each other. This is what we have. And so we've got to rely on each other. We've got to lean on each other. We've got to uh, really take this opportunity to come together. Dr. Shakir Emel out of California. Thank you, good brother. Will you join us again one day on Psychotic Bump School if we need you? Absolutely. Give me a call. Okay, stay tuned for more, y'all. We'll be right back with Christy Slanina. She's going to be sharing with us her story of her journey from America to Italy and back again during the onset of coronavirus. That's Mrs. Christy Slanina coming up next after this. Stay tuned for more. Hey, what's happening? This is Mark Maxwell, host of Rise, heard on KPFK. But right now, you're listening to one of my influences, the good brother DJ Rome on Psychotic Bump School. You know, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. Can you 
Yes, we are back. KCWG, thetruth.com. This program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and I'm very excited to have this next guest. She is actually a longtime friend of mine. It's amazing how fast time can go by. And she has already been across the world and back. And oh, my goodness, does she have a story to share with us as far as her international travels, especially during this time of this pandemic. So I would like for you to welcome this amazing woman. She's an educator. She's a mom, family woman, first and foremost. But uh, she has some amazing things to share with us. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome for the very first time to Psychotic Bump School, Mrs. Christy Slanina. Mrs. Slanina, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you back, and literally and figuratively, I'm really <laughs> happy that y'all are back in the States, your husband and you and your two beautiful children. How in the world are you doing since you've been back? We're good. I mean, um, it's, it's funny. People ask how we're doing, and uh, for us, we had already been in a lockdown um, quarantine situation three weeks prior and uh, in more strict conditions. And so for us being back in California and um, things are just, you know, just started happening, it's kind of like been there, done that, but been there, done that, we got exactly. this. Yeah. Wow, so this is nothing new. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, Christy is an educator. We actually met during my time in Southern California. And then over the years, she has married, started a family. And uh, I'm gonna have you take it from there, Christy. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you end up in the country that you ended up in and uh what were the circumstances that got you there kept you there and uh full circle you're back here now so first of all yes. how did you get to italy so uh my husband actually works for the department of defense he works for an agency that handles contracts um and he does quality management with them quality assurance um, the agency mostly operates within the continental U.S. However, there are a couple offices internationally, Milan, Italy being one, Germany, uh, Taiwan, Japan. And uh, we had always talked about living abroad and the opportunity came up to go to Milan. Um, and we, we actually chose to go to Milan because it was a big city uh, in a very central uh, area of Europe where we could go and travel as much as we wanted pretty easily. Uh, and so once we had moved, we moved out there in September of 2018 and we lived there for 18 months. However, we were contracted to be in Milan for three years, but living in Milan actually proved to be way, way too hard um, yeah. with, with a young family. Oh. And um, it, it, what happened is that my husband's job required him to travel. It's the same here in the U.S. He would go to different contractors within his region. Mm -hmm. However, because we, we were internationally, his contracts were in other countries, Greece, uh, Bulgaria, Bosnia. And um, so sometimes we would travel with him, which was fine. But uh, me and at that point, just one kid and right. pregnant where we were confined to a hotel room for most of the time because I'm not familiar with other countries mm -hmm. um so so you know sometimes we travel but it, it was really more of a hassle than than anything else um but not only that my husband is also in the air force reserves and he ended up having to go back to the states to do his reserve work um if you're if people are not familiar usually you work a weekend a month however because he was gone so long, he would have to fly back every uh, three months and, and be there for at least a week or two. 
And mm-hmm. so what happened was uh, he would travel for one job and then travel for his other job and leaving me alone with the kids two to three weeks a month in a country where, um, I mean, I eventually learned the culture. I know some basic Italian now, but we weren't given any language lessons or training. Um, it's, and I, we've never lived in a big city much Mm -hmm. just as adults, much less with children. Big city living is not made for young families. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was a struggle and then not having, um, the usual support group, our family and our friends. Um, and that was just really hard. And the, the breaking point was, um, my husband's father passed away this past August and Mm -hmm. just going back was so stressful and so hard. We realized, you know, we need to be home. We need to be closer to family. Mm -hmm. Um, our parents are getting older and, then on top of that, our son has possible speech delays, and we decided it would be easier to get services back in America. Oh, um, yeah. And so we we filed for curtailment, and uh, we were granted it in January. They said we could leave March 13th. Great. You know, we scheduled the movers to pack up our stuff. We took care of all our, you know, odds and ends. And come March, no, February 26th or 27th, Mm-hmm. that's when Italy was like, this crisis is getting out of hand. We are going to be locking down. Mm. And from that point on, we're like, oh, shoot, are we going to be able to get out? And I mean, eventually, obviously, we eventually did. Mm-hmm. But it was um, a really stressful, like, three weeks. Can you recall in detail, what was it like be- right before the onset of that February date you just mentioned? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the news outlets, the people, how would you describe the vibe around you in Milan, Italy, being an American citizen uh, with a small family? Uh, what do you recall about the emotions of the environment at that time? So um, we understood that uh, the people living in the city understood that there was a virus outbreak. However, we Milan itself, the government and the media really was trying to keep panic at bay and so they were telling us to practice social distancing distancing but you know still go out to aperitivo which is their version of happy hour um you know still go shopping things like that um they even had a hashtag that pretty much translated to uh milan continues or milan keeps going um Mm -hmm. things like that so they were really promoting the fact like be careful but Um, you know, don't stop your lives. Um, People were starting to wear masks, um, which was funny because then they would remove their masks and smoke their cigarettes. And so it's just like, well, (laughs) this doesn't really do anything. Um, I personally, I'm Asian American and um, I definitely stick out in Italy, but I didn't experience any racism or discrimination Mm -hmm. myself, but I did hear of stories of other people, um, uh, like a bus doors closing, um, you know, not allowing them onto the bus and the doors closing on them or, uh, you know, people re- refusing them service. I know Chinatown shut down completely. Um, there was supposed to be the Chinatown uh, New Year parade mm-hmm. and that was shut down. Um, and um, even outside of Chinatown um, in, in Milan, uh, all the nail salons are Chinese run. Um, you know, unlike in California, it's like Vietnamese run, there's Chinese run, and those closed very early, oh. even before they were mandated to. But I think it was just out of precaution and safety for themselves. 
mm-hmm. more than anything else. Um, within, since my husband works for the government, we had access to the U.S. consulate in Milan. Um, the actual diplomats that worked there were following, you know, the guidelines of the local government. So nobody was really in a panic. In fact, um, before the official lockdown happened, we even went to Venice to go see Carnivale. And um, everything was fine there. And the next morning when we woke up, that's when the lockdown happened. We're like, oh, like we had just visited one of the most populous tourist filled places and not realizing like how serious the situation was actually, you know, becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the expat group of American friends and also non-Americans, we had friends that were Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we we were trying to follow what we were told like okay like be cautious but don't end your lives I still was having like uh going out with a girlfriend here and there to just say you know on my goodbyes mm-hmm. and um it wasn't a real panic until about two weeks about March March 7th I think that's when they put they enforced the travel ban when they locked down all the borders um, and they started canceling trains and, and flights. And there was, that's, that's what set off a huge panic. A lot of people actually, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the decree um, announcing the lockdown in Milan was leaked a day before it happened. And Mm -hmm. so um, it was supposed to be enforced Sunday It leaked Saturday, Saturday evening there was a huge exodus of Italians leaving the city to go back to their own hometowns, like in the South or whatever. So people Mm -hmm. were at that point very much afraid and freaking out that they would be trapped wherever they are. Right. Oh boy. Well, um, you were right in the midst of that. So knowing that you had already been granted uh, clearance to return, mm-hmm. unlike mm-hmm. perhaps many people that may have been there who, you know, had other plans, you know, compared to your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said initially there was no panic. Uh, what were you starting to think once this uh, announcement, this decree was made public? Uh, in what ways did that uh, <laughs> change your perspective of your prospects of being able to come back home eventually? You know, for the first few days after this happened, we were pretty confident because uh, the U.S. government was telling us that this is only affecting Italian citizens, that we would have the proper paperwork to leave and things like that. But um, after a few days, when flights really started to get canceled and um, that that started to get worrisome. In fact, actually, um, my <laughs> this is a great story. I have a friend, a college friend who now teaches in England and he was actually in the Italian Alps uh, March 6 before the decree was um, was official and um, once that news leaked out the ski company that he was touring with decided to to get everybody out so they chartered they booked a charter flight from Turin and um, he and all these tourists were going to go down to Turin and fly back to England. However, the plane refused to land in the airport because of the virus. Mm. And so that forced them to drive the bus through, uh, through Italy and cross the border into France. And mm. they left from an airport uh, in France instead. Oh. So when that happened to my friend, 
you know, I'm, he's going through this and I'm trying to figure out um, from the consulate side, what kind of resources he would need if like they stopped him at the border and things like that. That's when the real worry set in that like, yeah. Um, you know, if he, he's a tourist mm-hmm. and, uh, but a European, you know, he, he's a resident of the EU, like, or was the EU. I mean, Brexit's the whole other thing, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, like that was worrisome. Um, and wow. then, um, you know, our, we didn't know if our movers were coming. That was something we kind of checked in on from day to day. They did come, they packed up our stuff. Hmm. And the day they packed up everything and that we were, we were supposed to go to the airport, which was March uh, 11th, uh, which was our three-year wedding anniversary. So all our stuff is packed up. We're in an empty apartment. We're about to be picked up by, uh, by a, 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 car to go to the air, uh, hotel airport airport mm-hmm. and we, our flight is canceled okay so uh. my husband gets on the phone he books us another flight okay six mm-hmm. hours later that flight's canceled uh. okay so we get on the phone we book another flight we wake up and you know we get to the hotel everything is fine the next day flight is canceled oh and we're like gosh. oh my gosh so that's three flights in a row canceled right. Oh. I'm I'm like okay, you know what? Um, call the call, find us another flight. I'm gonna go downstairs to the restaurant, hotel restaurant. Um, and only one is open now. All restaurants are closed. Mm. I'm gonna go to the bar. I'm gonna get us some drinks, and I'll come right back up. I go down to the bar, and I did not know it, but hours before the Italian government decreed that everything closed, like all the restaurants, all the bars. So even the hotel bar and restaurant was closed. I couldn't even get my drink. Oh, and I was like, this is the worst. Oh my God. So that was, that was like my breaking point. I actually started crying on the oh, way back. Wow. I don't blame you. Be- yeah. I was just like, I, I can't even like get a glass of wine right now. It's like take the edge off. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were able to book a flight and um, the next morning, which is Friday, the 13th, March 13th, we woke up early packed, you know, got all the stuff together, got the kids together. Um, and at this time, my kids are two and, um, uh, 10 months. Babies. Wow. They're, they're babies. Mm -hmm. And, and then I, um, you know, we, we go to the airport, we go through security, we have all our paperwork, our passports, um, and we fly on diplomatic passports. We don't have tourist passports, so it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're like, okay, nothing's been canceled yet. Uh, we actually meet another consulate um, affiliated person uh, who is also leaving. He's being evacuated because he's an older gentleman with some health issues. So he's being uh, medically evacuated home, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we make it onto the plane to Munich. And um, in Munich, it's funny, no one tested us, you know, our temperature no one um we only filled out a form with our information so that people can contact us if there is any issue with uh, a coronavirus infection on the plane mm-hmm. or where we were um in fact when they asked us um when they were checking our passports they asked us have we ever traveled to china or iran and those were the only two countries they asked about and i'm like we literally are the, you're so close to italy why aren't you asking if we had been flying in from Italy. Like we were ready to be truthful and be quarantined for what, how many hours needed. Mm-hmm. And they just waved us through. And I'm like, this, this can't be good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, boy. Right. Yes. So that can't be good. 
Hmm. And then, hold on. And then we find out, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I have to back up. So before we, we left for the airport, um, my husband gets a call from his superiors and Trump had announced the travel ban. Um, mm-hmm. And of course our family's freaking out. We, we assure them that the travel ban doesn't apply to American citizens. We have governmental orders to leave. We're okay. Mm-hmm. However, Ryan's agency called and said, we are putting a stop to all movement for, for the agency itself. Like mm-hmm. it, not with the travel ban, but this is just for the safety of the employees, wherever you are, you're going to stop. If you're moving right now, you have to get where you are by midnight, Eastern mm. Standard Time, on Friday, uh, midnight of Friday, mm. or else you're stuck wherever you are for at least 60 days. And that was Whoa. just like, oh my gosh, okay, oh, we, wow. have to make, we have to make this flight, we have to make it to Munich, and from Munich, we've got to get on the plane to LAX. Like, like mm. there's no other choice. We cannot, or else we would be stuck in Milan at the hotel airport for wow. 60 days, because we mm. can't return to our old apartment. It's empty. There's empty. nobody... Yeah. Or we're stuck at Munich airport and try to find housing or something with two kids and only whatever we packed. Mm -hmm. And so that was a race for the clock. So if anything was delayed, it, it would have, it would have messed us up. We actually landed in LAX with four hours to go before like a complete stop on all movement whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. It was just, it was something else like just, one thing after another and um the one i guess you could say good thing was that um with the announcement of the travel ban uh they were going to um only allow americans to fly into uh 11 airports within the united states and that they would be able to um test everybody Mm -hmm. and we missed that that didn't start until saturday and thank goodness because we had other consulate friends, a family of five. They had three kids mm. of age five, three, and not even two. Mm. It, they ended up in the long lines at the airport for testing. They waited an extra oh. like five, six hours. Their travel time to from Milan to Indiana was 48 hours. Whoa. With, yeah. So a lot mm. of us... like traveling with kids is already hard but traveling under this condition on these under these conditions was insane absolutely well this is kcwg the truth.com's program called psychotic bump school i'm dj rome we're listening to christy slalina she's uh sharing her her journey her uh exploration to italy and back during the onset of coronavirus so wow it it sounds like god or somebody was looking out for you yes we yeah, we were very, very fortunate. Um, just timing worked out amazingly for us and just last minute, last minute little miracles. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're super grateful. Um, we're also very grateful that our friends after us, although their travels were a little more difficult, mm-hmm. everybody who evacuated back to America made it. Okay, um, good. Yeah, I, yeah, a lot of people, at least within the consulate, either they had to choose to be evacuated back to America or they were all evacuated to Rome. And so every, everybody is displaced everybody one way or another. Okay. Well, yeah. quick recap, though. I mean, you mm-hmm. find out that the, uh, the decree came down, country's on lockdown. You can't get your bottle of wine to calm your nerves <laughs> a little bit. You have three flights, at least three flights consecutively canceled, and they, mm-hmm. they're not canceled right away. You, you get almost up until the time when it's time to, like, 
get to the airport and start boarding and then it's canceled, right? Um, so. not, not right up to the boarding, but like, yeah, within, we would book and like hours later, it's like, we get canceled. an email that is canceled. So oh. it was just nerve wracking, like, and very much. Yeah. And in the, um, hotel airport, there's like the monitor. So you can see what flights are arriving and departing and it's all red canceled, 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 like maybe two, three flights hmm. leaving. Um, I remember I was messaging you at that time. Cause I remember, wait, I know Christy is in Italy and <laughs> yeah. I knew this, that Italy was one of the first countries that was in the news as, you know, really experiencing this. And we were seeing mm -hmm. news here in the States where people are singing from their balconies, you know, being on mm -hmm. lockdown. And I remember if I look and look back on the text messaging that you and I were exchanging, you were saying, yeah, we're locked down. We have been for a while, but it's actually not that bad. Right. But it's, it's the drama heightens when you're trying to leave. Well, did you, how, to what degree did you have to quarantine once they knew where you were traveling from mm -hmm. and knowing that you had already been in lockdown while in Milan, Italy, uh, mm -hmm. what was the quarantining requirements once your family landed back in LAX? So quarantine requirements uh, for us was that we self-quarantined for 14 days, um, that we didn't leave the house. I mean, the beauty of America is we pretty much got everything delivered or, um, you know, we had family and friends who would drop things off on our porch um, okay. if we needed it. Um, the What I think was the most difficult part is that um, the baby, she developed like a sinus infection, like a viral sinus infection. Mm. There was, I could not get a pediatrician to, to let us come and take a look at her. Mm -hmm. um, as soon as I, and because I was being transparent, like, hey, I'm under self-quarantine. We just came back from Milan, Italy. As mm -hmm. soon as I said that, yep. they're like, we cannot see you. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, can you, can you at least let me, tell me what am I supposed to do? Do I take her to the ER? Do I take her to urgent care? Like, it's not an emergency, but I need, mm -hmm. you know, possible antibiotics. Right. Um, so that was kind of stressful. And um, mm. in the end, um, I was able, a friend recommended a um, virtual doctor app okay. and they were able to see her and prescribe like antibiotics. So that worked out well. I'm very, I'm very grateful for that service because we, we definitely need that in this situation. But it was, it was like very frustrating where it was like, okay, I know we're total pariahs right now. Nobody wants to be near us. Mm -hmm. um, but can you at least tell me what I should do? But I think- exactly. I think a lot of people didn't know what to do, I, especially the right. small practices. They, they hear coronavirus, Milan, Italy, and they're like, well, we can't endanger everybody else, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't know where to send us. It's not like they have like this, all these instructions of what to do if someone called them in this situation. Like we have a very unique situation. You sure did. What a story. And uh, I'm just happy that your family and you are back here safe with us all. And uh, you came full circle. I mean, you, you took the journey, you took the challenge of going across the world and you have one harrowing experience uh, under your belt now to share and enlighten others. So. Yes, original rhythm, the drum beater, hot tech in the house, quality in the house. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a Come on. York to California, the way we do it is fluid just like water. Come on. Life got a way of sneaking up on you.
The way we do it is fluid just like water Come on, Beat on the drum like bang bang You're trying to maintain the same frame of mind While the game change I know you're sick of the same thing With different results Stop sticking the needle up in the same vein The definition of insane My theory is big bang We hunting for big game The quick change over Got the rappers confused Tech back on the board Quality is back in the booth Let's go, go. Say that again. Word. Come on. That's right. Back again. You can like rap again. You can say that again. You can say that again. This independent hustle. It got me on my grind. I flex my pen like a muscle and write a battle rhyme. I gotta exercise. I gotta get the ghost out. I gotta testify. The legend never die. I'm connected to the struggle. Got a little light and this little light of mine. I'm about to let it shine. I get better with time. So right when you were about to say something real slick, you like never mind. I stay Grinding like airplanes and never fly I still never come down, I'm forever high My addiction is American, it's devil's pie We stay where the snitches live and the rebels die Men and women might try, numbers never lie But I'm too fluid, there's no unit that I'm measured by The nighttime where the ghetto come alive And the artificial die like yellow number five, five. Come on That's right, we're back again You can like rap again, you can say that again Word Say that again. This is Amber Ojeda, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Let's go! It's the Raymond's, baby.
We are back, KCWG, thetruth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome, and I am very excited to have this next panel back. Uh, we've had some developments in the world of politics recently. Of course, the coronavirus is still an ongoing issue. Uh, we're here to talk about what has happened in the uh, Democratic primary race. So welcoming back uh, these two people from uh, last time, we had a pretty robust conversation, and uh, we have these amazing guests who are privy to this uh, development today, and I, I just am just really curious to pick their brains about it. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bum School, Miss Lori Peacock, and my good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller. Lori, Jeff, are you there? Yes, sir. How you doing, Ron? I am really, really well. It's really good to hear your voice, and it doesn't sound like this sheltering in has uh, discouraged you very much. You sound all bright, chipper. How's Lori doing? Hey, I'm doing all right, too. Thanks, Rob. Fantastico. Well, uh, it's always good to hear y'all's voices. Uh, Bernie Sanders has dropped out of the race. What can both of you say about what, what were some of the positive aspects that he brought to the race, that he brought to democratic thinking, democratic thought, political talk? Uh, what were some of the good things that he brought to the table? Lori and then Jeff. I love his take on health care. I really think that health care should be something that every person in this country has uh, a right to and has adequate care uh, that they need. Um, I think that's really important. It's always been important to me and, and, and it's definitely important to Bernie Sanders. So that's something I, I completely get behind. I like his passion, his fervor, his, his, his beliefs. You know, like I said, I think if we're in step, I'm in step with most most of his, his beliefs. It's just that for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's, and I don't want it to be something as much as like style or personality, because again, that's not, that shouldn't be what, what we're basing our, our decisions on. But there was something that just didn't get me to say, yes, I love Bernie. Now, again, had he won the Democratic Party nomination, I would have donated money, I would have phone banks, I would have voted for him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but as far as 
get being one of uh, being one of his people or, or his his early voters or early supporters i i just he hasn't spoken to me for some reason i don't know what that is biden of course was our vice president for eight years under obama whom i adore mm. whom, whom i just love i love everything about obama was he perfect no did he try his hardest to do what he wanted the best for our country absolutely did he make mistakes sure but he's a politician, right? With a with right. a Congress that's not helping, that's with a Congress that's not willing to help him any anywhere along the line. That's right. So, you know, you, Biden has always had a place in my heart for that reason, and I know he's flawed, and I know he has his, his issues and his history, but I've always, you know, I, I've always liked him. So that Bernie never wooed me away from right. um, from Biden. That's right. Good points, Jeff. Or uh, Lori, because Jeff, uh, she's right. I mean, he did force the discussion to go to the left. He did sort of uh, ignite sort of a progressive rallying cry around him. And so people now are talking about things that used to be considered fringe issues, believe it or not, like Medicare for all. A couple other things. What else do you feel like Bernie brought to the race now that he's gone that uh, the Democratic Party will probably, for the foreseeable future, now be impacted by? Uh, I liked his uh, criminal justice reform. Okay. You know, he wanted to get rid of capital punishment and, you know, eliminate, you know, mandatory, you know, have a mandatory uh, minimum sentence reform. That's right. You know, um, I also liked his, you know, affordable housing. I mean, that that was big. And, of course, everybody talks about income inequality. That's right. Um, You know, raise taxes on the wealthy, you know, and have Mm -hmm. create new social programs. Um, I mean, uh, they still got to save Social Security, right? I mean, it's it's it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, everybody's going for minimum wage, but that was one of Bernie's first things, um, fifteen dollars right. minimum wage. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know, is, it helps helps the you know common person. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just think Bernie just has a way to rub people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you had to work hard and pay for college, why would you want people to have free college? Like figure out a different way where they can pay for it. Okay. You know, if you have medic, you know, if you already like your doctor, well, why, don't, why do I have to give it up? Mm. You know, there, I think I think we can do the things he wants to do, mm. but I think there's just different ways of doing it. Yes. And to your point, there were a lot of rumblings that he was going to, if he became the presumptive nominee, there was the concern that on down ballot races, that was going to make it harder for them to hold on to the House and harder to possibly take back the Senate. Because with such a a sort of a polarizing figure at the top, uh, voters would tend to want to balance that out by possibly voting in more uh, conservative or moderate leaning um, senators. So it, it matters who you have at the top. So uh, this is a big development. So let, let's do this pivot right here. This is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. We're back with uh, the amazing Lori Peacock, as well as Jeffrey Keller. And we're talking about the latest shakeup in the Democratic primary. Joe Biden is on his way to the nomination with the absence now of Bernie Sanders. So let's talk about it. Uh, Joe Biden has a little baggage, according to his detractors. He uh, sponsored the crime bill in 1994. Uh, He's not the most articulate sometimes, which I think is an unfair knock against him. Uh, I understand him very well. He has a history having now, this will be his third crack at the presidency. 
And it looks like the third time is going to be the charm because this time he is the nominee. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of the things that could uh, possibly derail his chances, uh, namely the crime bill and uh, even uh, his son, Hunter Biden, which came up a lot during the impeachment trial. And sadly, uh, this sexual harassment thing that is always going to plague every male candidate. We talked about that last time, too. Uh, your thoughts now that he's the nominee, Lori, uh, Joe Biden's baggage. How do you reckon with that and still uh, aim to support him in the general election? Well, I think when you compare Biden's baggage to the current president's baggage, well, we're talking like a little tiny lunch pail size versus, you know, filling up a trunk and a whole back of an SUV. Of, cases like it's yeah he's baggage I'm not going to deny that again I've always known that I don't think there's ever been a politician to rise to the level of that point who didn't have something in their past that they have made a mistake or done wrong I mean I have something in my past that I made a mistake and I did wrong and I am ashamed of it and I'm embarrassed about it and I would do anything to change it but I can't if that was public knowledge and everybody knew about it, I would feel really terrible. Think yeah. how they don't, right? But the thing is, it would definitely, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm the same person today that I was when I made that mistake. I have changed, I've grown, I've learned, I've developed. And I would like to think that the same is true for Biden, that the mistakes that he has made, he has atoned for, he has apologized for, he has admitted and acknowledged. Unlike, again, our current president, who will never admit to any wrongdoing, who will never apologize for any wrong that he has done um, or acknowledge it. So I don't have a problem with it. I, and, and I've had to accept politicians with baggage. I mean, I was a huge Bill Clinton fan, loved that man. Mm. And was, you know, he made some terrible, horrible decisions and mistakes and lied to me and the American people and, and did all kinds of things, you know, that, that, that I'm sure he would, he would, he regrets, right? right? So who doesn't? And as far as the, the sexual harassment thing, again, with Biden, you know, giving somebody a, a massage or a shoulder rub isn't the same as grabbing them in an inappropriate spot. Um, right. There's levels, right? And I think, I think people tend to get a little bit too overzealous when they want to call out, oh my gosh, he, he said I was pretty and I was offended. You know, some women, some of the accusations that I hear from women about that are a little bit extreme. Not saying that's the case here, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, I don't know that his, his sexual harassment was all that harassment, all the mess right. harassment, so. I hear you. So why is she correct, Jeffrey Keller? Because what does it do to you as a voter? Because I think you talked about this too. If somebody expresses contrition or they can indicate to you through the, either their actions, their policies, or their rhetoric that they, they have evolved. Uh, why is that important to you as a voter, knowing that they have sort of a complicated history with some of the things they've done in the past? Well, well I, I would hope that I'm not the same person at 30 that I was at 20. And I will hope I'm not the same person at 40 that I was at 30. Mm. I hope that I would evolve. And so I want my, if, you, if we're going to have politicians be career politicians that are in the political arena for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you will hope they would evolve and not stay the same like Mitch McConnell and some of these others. That's right. And That's so right. What, I, what I like about Biden, even in the debate, when he, when he talked about the crime bill, he said he wishes he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have voted for it. He wouldn't have created it. 
you know, had things in it. But at the time, people forget it was a crack epidemic. There was right. people mm-hmm. going around shooting. It was, it was crazy. It's, it was a wild, wild west. You could be at Jack in the Box drive through and get, get shot because they're trying to get somebody. Right. People mm-hmm. forget the, the, the times and what was in it. Now, do, do I agree with the crime bill? No, I hated the crime bill. Mm-hmm. There was another different way to get there. But he said, I, I apologize, and I've learned from that. And that's all I can ask for somebody. Because if you can apologize and learn, well, when you're in the office, you make a mistake, you're, you will look at the people and apologize. I appreciate that. So it shows me he has grown as an individual. That's right. That's and, right. You know, so I think with, with Biden, the big thing for him is going to be really is who his vice president choice is. Absolutely. Because, because like, yeah, like you said, though, because when he gets in debates, they're going to bring up the crime bill. They're going to mm. bring up Hunter. They're going to bring up the sexual harassment. They're going to do all those things. Right. And he's right. got to be ready in those debates to not get flustered, not get frustrated, and stand there and take it and give it back. Absolutely. He must do that. So what's the best way to counter it then, since we're talking about that? And I hear you on the VP picks, because I definitely want to get y'all's take on that before I let you go. How do you counter that messaging, Lori? Because 45 does not have, he didn't win on his policy positions. He didn't have any. He was, he was, a, he was, yeah. a, he was a comedian at a, at a roasting festival. He was name calling. He had nicknames for people. He was cutting people down before they even had a chance to speak. And he was doing that to such a degree that he was sucking up all the oxygen in the Republican primary. And people were like, okay, I like this guy. He's cute. He's funny. He's different. He's an outsider. It's like, I'm voting for him. So how do you counter that? Like Jeff said, if he starts talking all this, this crazy stuff and you want to be having, I mean, one thing Bernie also bought was message discipline. And that was a problem because he wouldn't change his tune, (laughs) but how can Biden have a balance between message discipline and punching back when 45 starts talking crazy like that? <laughs> he needs to channel his inner Barack Obama. <laughs> because if, <laughs> if there was one thing that Obama did was he kept it cool. He was cool. And I, I, I would just like, what would Obama do? How would Obama respond to this? What would That's he a say? very good answer. You know? Yeah, I like that. Go ahead. What would Obama <laughs> no, do? Because what would Obama do, right? Because he wouldn't again hit below the belt. He would rise above it. He would he would rise to the challenge. He would speak to his strength and accentuate his partner's faults without being attacking and rude. He's very very subtle, but he would do it. So I think Biden can do it. Um, I I think he just needs to be cool and calm and let let Trump make a fool of himself. And this time around, it won't be so cute to voters. It won't be so funny. It won't be so unique and different different because people are hungry. People are losing their jobs. People are dying. People are, are, are scared. Yeah. You know? So I think it's going to be a definite different tone with these debates, assuming we have them. Yeah. Um, definitely a different tone and a different reception. And I think you know, if we're allowed to vote and we can get out and vote, I think a lot of those fringe vote not fringe voters, I think a lot of those Republican voters who voted for Trump because, you know, they're Republican, but they really weren't sure about it and that now have regret that decision or feel like they maybe made a mistake, I think they could definitely vote for Biden. I could see wow. that happening way before they would ever vote for Hillary. 
Wow. She makes a good point, Jeff, because this is not Hillary Clinton this time. This is Joe Biden, and he's not perfect, like she said, but he is not, you know, he has his own baggage, but this is a different race this time. And if he channeled his inner Obama, I love that response. What would Obama do? What would he do? I think he did that already, Jeff. Did you did you catch the the last debate? There was no audience, but it was just one on one with him and Bernie. Did you happen to catch some of that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought, I mean, how well do you think? Because Bernie came after him on that when he was trying to get him to admit that he was trying to cut Social Security, as as one example. Mm -hmm. um, can you what what are your thoughts on what Lori just said about being able to take the hit and then pivot with your own messaging? See, I love Lloyd because she's so optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> we need some optimism. <laughs> I, I love that. I just, he just has these things where he gets frustrated in these debates. Mm. When, you, when you call him on something, he can't take a breath and go blah, blah, blah. He has to attack right back. And sometimes it's like, dude, what are you talking about? Okay. You, you know, and, and, and I mean, he's been a politician for a long time. Yeah. Where Barack, you know, Barack was used to people attacking him. Oh, good point. You know, being a black politician, you know, they, they tried everything wrong. He's too smart. He's not really black. Mm -hmm. He's too black. That's right. I mean, they tried every angle to try to get him. Right. And, but he fend all that off because he was used to it growing up as a black man. That's right. Biden has been privileged. He doesn't have those things. Okay. And so I don't know if he has the tools to deal, to get in the mud mm. and rise up above that when you have that arrogance about you. Wow. And that's the thing he has with him is that arrogance. And when you crack that, he gets frustrated. That's true. And I that's hope, the only thing that I'm scared of. Yeah. I hope the way he's been treating some of these town halls, did you, did either of you happen to catch when he said to the guy who asked him, he said, you're a GD liar, or he, he pushed back on someone. I mean, I hope he brings some of that fire to the debates once he goes up against 45, because he is going to need a little bit of that venom, because I do not want to see him get rolled. I want him to punch back. I want him to be cool, though as much as he can channel that, that inner previous administration, I, I think it'll serve him really well. And one thing that he can do to help calm people's nerves about his, uh, he, he, he's a historical gaffe machine and people know that, but he can calm a whole lot of fears if he picks the right VP. So out there right now, he's already made it very public that he plans to pick a woman. Do either of you have a thought about who that woman could be? Let me go first to Lori and then Jeffrey Keller on that. I don't know enough about the inner workings of the Democratic Party to know how they would go about selecting someone. So I don't want to speak to something and make it seem like I, I know it all when I really don't. Okay. Um, I would like to think, I, I, I mean, there's some really strong women that were in this presidential race, um, really capable women that I think would be wonderful um as running mates for him and again i'm cool with him regardless because i'm gonna go democrat like i always have since i was 18 years old but i don't know i, I like elizabeth warren i don't know does, that, does she want to be vice president do people want to be vice president these days um I'm i don't know but i i I, <laughs> I like her i think she's 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 got a lot of uh, we, i agree with her on a lot of things 
Um, That's right. So, you know, she's an option. I don't know enough of the different different candidates and different potential. I got you covered. Say, but yeah. I got you covered on that because you, you're absolutely right. Uh, Jeff, y'all know I actually voted for Elizabeth Warren and I had to, I have to double check this because I saw this while I was doing some reading today. Uh, in the Republican race with George, uh, no, was it Ronald Reagan? Yeah, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush, I think, was also running for president that year. And when he didn't get the nomination, Ronald Reagan picked him as his VP running mate. So it has happened on the Republican side. I don't know that having a Democratic primary rival has eventually become uh, the, the nominee's VP pick. Now, if that's a possibility, Jeffrey Keller, how high up in the running is a, an Elizabeth Warren or some of these other names that are floating around out there like Gretchen Whitmer out of uh, Michigan? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you got to bring somebody in that's going to, you know, bring you votes. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, because I'm not confident that Bernie's people would vote Democrat unless you had Bernie Bernie as a VP. I mean, I mean, you could have, you know, Klobuchar, you know, Harris, Warren, mm -hmm. uh, Whitmer, like you said. Um, but will they bring, will they bring confidence in the, in, in, in the votes that the Democrats need. And I right. think when you pick somebody that's this year, mm -hmm. that's gotta be the major concern. If that, right. Will this VP bring me votes? That's right. Well, to that end, James Clyburn out of South Carolina, given that South Carolina is singularly responsible for turning this election in his favor, he says that it's time for black women to be rewarded and to become the vice presidential democratic pick for this race. And so for me, that's a very short list of competent sisters. I mean, let me rephrase that because that didn't come out right. There's a whole lot of sisters that can fit that bill, okay? But in terms of meeting that criteria that you just mentioned, Jeff, somebody that can help us win, I like Val Demings. Val Demings out of Florida. She's, uh, I think she was a police chief and she was actually one of the uh, prosecutors during the impeachment trial alongside Adam Schiff and Hakeem Jeffries. I think she is an interesting pick because Florida, as you know, is a swing state and we need Florida. And Jeffrey Keller, ladies and gentlemen, y'all might recall, this is a very smart guy. He said that something fishy is always bound to happen if the election is close in one of those states we're gonna need like Florida. And somehow, some way, it always ends up going to the Republican, a la Al Gore and George W. Bush in 2000, okay? And I think it happened again in 2004. Yep. Uh, that is definitely in play, all right? I like her. Uh, how about Susan Rice? She's in California. Uh, some people have even floated Kamala Harris. Now, I have my concerns about, well, I have my preferences for Kamala Harris, but she's in California. Um, Jeffrey Keller, how useful would that be to possibly entertain the prospect of a Kamala Harris uh, VP pick? Well, I mean, let's be real. Democrats don't have to worry about California. That's true. You know, so I'm not sure how much that would, uh, you know, I, I got to look at somebody that's going to get us that South and Midwest vote. There you go. That, that, okay. that, that, that's, that's what I need. Okay. Uh, you know, How about Stacey, Stacey Abrams' name has come up? Anybody feeling her? 
Stacy, you got Keisha Bottoms. I mean, oh yeah, out of Atlanta. That's right. Yeah. Okay, wait a minute. How are we? How are we thinking that a, a black woman is going to help us win? Where is where is the rationale there? The rationale. That's a very good question. The rationale is for the last several election cycles, the most reliable voting block in the Democratic Party is black women. 96% of black female voters support the Democratic nominee. And they have been the firewall against ultimate electoral doom because they always support the eventual nominee. And so Clyburn out of South Carolina, who has a lot of pool in that state, says that this time, we're not going to be political sharecroppers this time. We've been carrying this party for years, for decades now. So this time, you're going to reward sisters for their loyalty by picking one of them to be the running mate. And I think that's what pushed Biden, at least to declare that he'll pick a woman. He's not committed to picking a woman of a particular race. But the contention is that it's time for Black women to be acknowledged for their loyalty. That's where that's coming from. Do you agree with that, Lori, or no? No, I, I, well, I'm not saying that black women should not be acknowledged for their loyalty. Black women should be acknowledged for a whole lot of things, in my mm-hmm. opinion, on a regular basis that doesn't, doesn't happen. But that's a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. But as far as like helping win the election, I don't know that that's going to make a difference at all. Um, mm-hmm. as, as a black woman, I don't know that, um, that that's going to make a difference. And, then I, and I'm just concerned it could take away from potential white voters um, you know, not, not take away, but not enhance it, right? Like, right. Like, if we get a woman in there, if we get a woman in there, that's a big step. That's a big step. A black woman is like, oh, I don't know. That's like asking for a whole lot right now. Like, I just <laughs> right. want to beat Trump, right? Like, <laughs> I don't want right. to get too greedy. There you go. <laughs> you know Maybe. what I'm saying? Like, Maybe. I give it time. Well, that's our program, y'all. Psychotic Bump School is the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome, and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time normally. Check back with us. We shall return to our regularly scheduled slot. Also want to thank our guests for this episode, Dr. Shakir Emel, Mrs. Christy Slanina, welcome home, and of course, Lori Peacock and my good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller. I also want to send a shout out to Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board, and we're out of here, y'all. Take care. <laughs>